Hi everyone, it's Lauren Hawker-Zaffer. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. I'm an educator and I'm taking you on an educational exploration into the fascinating minds of those that embody and forefront all you need to know about artificial intelligence, machine learning, insight engines, and the insights era. This episode today, it's called Enriching and Innovating the Creator Economy, Web3 and the Metaverse. And to discuss this, I have been joined by Sandra Hero. Sandra is the Chief Commercial Officer and Co-Founder at Metapolis. With in-depth knowledge and a multidisciplinary background spanning across traditional and digital industries, Sandra leads all commercial aspects of Metapolis. Growth, partnerships, strategy, marketing and expansion. Her global experience across Australia, Asia, Europe and the Middle East enables her to deliver on both strategy and execution level. A futurist and action leader at heart, Sandra is very committed to enriching and innovating the creator economy, Web3 and the metaverse NFT space. Now, as you know, all of us that have participated in following this show, we love hosting guests on Redefining AI who have a thirst for exploring possibilities and predictions. And for this reason, everyone, it's a real pleasure to have Sandra. Welcome, Sandra. Hey, Lauren, how are you? It's really nice to be here. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, I mean, I'm wonderful. Um, I cannot complain at all. And we started the year well. Have you started the year well as well? You know, the year started by really quickly. So, so far, so I can't complain. <laughs> so, Sandra, impressive introduction, a futurist and action leader. And I would say that these two definitions, they certainly ooze opportunity for admiration. Tell us, Sandra, a little bit more about who you are and why you align with these two particular definitions. You know, a very good question to start off with. I think the term action leadership was kind of, uh, I'm not going to say coined by us as a team, but it was something that we truly believed in. Whenever we had discussions and even just looking at the space in general, there were a lot of people who were sharing their thoughts and their perspective in the space. You know, everyone has an opinion, which is always welcome. People should have opinions and they should share them for discussion. But the only difference that we noticed is that other than just sharing our thoughts and talking about it, we were actually in the background actioning off what we said we were going to do. So we started to say, please don't refer to, you know, what I'm doing or what we are doing as a team as thought leaders. We'd like to see ourselves more as action leaders. So that's kind of how it moved across. Um, in regards to the futurist, you know, looking at the space, I guess, if you just look at my background personally, when I left university and I joined the industry, I was in the, I was between the traditional going digital phase. So everyone that was a traditional company, individual business was looking how they can go digital and transform their operations, their business models. And the best part is that a lot of the technology that's used now, we've already been using and you could already see exactly the progression that's going to come and what was going to happen. So it was very clear to kind of pinpoint what the future is going to hold for the consumer, for brands, for industries. And we just work towards that as a collective team. And so that's kind of where I fit in to the whole mix of things. And do you think that that's maybe an innate skill that you've had? I mean, you said that it was quite easy for you to sort of pinpoint the future or what could happen in the future. How would you encourage other people to do that as well and to sort of identify with this futurist vision? 
Definitely. I mean, look, I'm, I'll be really straightforward. My background is in deep strategy. I'm a strategist at heart. Everything I do requires strategy. Now, when I say strategy, I'm not talking about business models. I actually hate business models because people need to quickly be able to pivot to what's happening in the market and the feedback that they're getting. But strategizing exactly what, uh, let's take a brand, for example, what your brand is, what your goal is, what your vision is, strategizing around it is where it comes in. And also being open to new technologies and trying it out, uh, anticipating exactly what needs to happen and what is required. And more than that, it's the education that comes with it. So really infuse yourself in different aspects of what the industry is doing. You know, some people focus deeply into NFTs, but completely canceled out the metaverse or AI and, you know, the rest of, of, of Web3, such as, you know, DeFi and all that. Some people did the opposite. Uh, there's always going to be that fine line between your passion and upskilling. And I think a lot of people need to have a really collaborative crossover between what you like doing and what you should consider applying to a skill set. Nice. Before we go into, into the depths of the conversation, because we've already mentioned a few terms that are really quite central to what we are discussing, I think that it's good is that we actually take the time um, to introduce three of the key terms that lace our own narrative. And that would be Web3, it would be the metaverse, and it would be as well the creator economy. Now, I know that there's a lot of maybe thought leaders in the space that have openly said that the metaverse per se has not been defined, but you yourself are either defining it or you're working with a definition. When we're looking at the listeners of redefining AI, what definitions are you working with for, for those three terms? You know, it's it's always difficult to say one definition and then expect everyone else to kind of agree with it because at the end of the day, it is a matter of perspective and how we see it. So the way I'll answer this question is simply my own perspective that probably no one else would really agree with. So, you know, for me, I, I do agree the metaverse in itself has not been defined as what it is, but I don't believe it's something that should be defined. You know, we don't sit here trying to define, uh, I don't know, uh, it's very early morning for me. I probably can't give a good example, but I, mean, I don't know the internet or what an apple is or something like that. You know, we, the definitions don't really always need to apply. The way we, the way I see the metaverse is that it's going to be the, the next iteration of what the internet is in regards to bringing together new layers of engagement and new ways of seamlessly connecting the physical and the digital worlds. You know, I think the internet is all good and great and we're all, you use it 24 seven a day, 24 seven hours um, a day. But there is new layers of engagement that you can bring in. There's new revenue streams and new revenue models that you can introduce. And that comes through the creator economy as well. Now, the creator economy for me is depends on everyone's background, but everyone now is in a position where they can make a brand for themselves, regardless if it's through your skill, if it's a new learned skill, if it's through collaboration. Previously, and this is an example I like to give when I was in, in university, you know, as a you know, graphic designers or artists, they would always upload their work to Behance or Dribble, I think it was called, and wait for someone to say, look, come work for us. Or down the track, they'd be online and found out that someone actually stole their work and used it in a print. But now with the creator economy, what's actually happening is you are able to define your own identity, your own brand, and how you can introduce revenue streams into your knowledge base and share that. So that in itself is extremely beautiful because now it's a free for all for everyone to be able to essentially become their own brand, um, which is beautiful for me, uh, in all honesty, because you have a mix of cultures, you have a mix of skills happening. Collaboration is extremely important for it. And, um, you know, if you look at Web3 in general, to me personally, Web3 is just the umbrella that has everything underneath it. I mean, it's what brings blockchain, crypto, metaverse, NFTs, AI, um, just that whole spatial web umbrella of technology 
under one, I guess you could say, um, I don't know, is it an acronym or a word? <laughs> I don't know how to define it. Great. I think we can certainly work with those t- definitions. And I, I would agree that, you know, there are, it's not that we want our listeners to certainly align with the definitions that you've given, but I think it's really important that we can see what are you working towards and what are you working with to be able to establish your, your own developments. You mentioned that the creator economy that it gives everyone an opportunity to create their own identity, their own brand. It's sort of this free for all. Are you motioning that support because you mentioned that it is very beautiful from an opportunity to create, to express? Or is it more that people now have commercial opportunities to commercialize from the individual? You know, it is a bit of both. And I think here I can give you two extremely different examples. You know, I can say for you, for example, in the Middle East, right? Uh, I'll give you Lebanon as an example, actually. You know, so in Lebanon, you have a lot of great designers, a lot of creatives. But with the economical issues that have been happening with Web3, they were able to open their market to accept crypto and start kind of collaborating with the people from all over the world, right? So in a sense, that allowed for creatives to not be out of work, but to use their skill and thanks to crypto and blockchain to kind of get out there and collaborate and learn more. But then you have the other example that I can give you, which is, you know, any person who, again, is a graphic designer or is an artist, they can upskill, you know, learn 3D, they can uh, apply more technology and the and the narratives into what they actually are delivering through NFTs and how they want to collaborate with others in the in the market and bring on new revenue streams and new ways of actually um, establishing their own brand position. The difference between what traditionally happens in Web 2 and what Web 3 allows is that we are no longer confined to needing to belong to a brand to upskill or to showcase our talent. We now have the capability to do that ourselves and still make revenue from all the open revenue streams. You know, a lot of people launched NFTs that made them, uh, you know, famous worldwide. And that was kind of a skill that they had just picked up from, from their background using the work they already had. So this is why for me, the creator economy is beautiful because regardless of where you are, you can still make it work. Mm. I mean, again, we're looking at people that might be new to this whole concept of the creator economy. How niche do you think it is? And what percentage of people are actually aligning or identifying, taking the opportunity? You give us a good example there of, of Lebanon and how people have adapted to it, immersed themselves in it, taken that opportunity. But what are we looking at on a scale of alignment or taking the opportunity to explore it? I mean, if we look just plainly at the market and what's happening with all the layoffs, I think you do notice there's a big, big shift of people now entering Web3. For me personally, I do believe that a lot of them are entering it individually, looking for jobs, meaning that they are still a part of the creator economy, because even if they are not finding a job, the level of um, and I'll just be very, very basic with the example I give. The level of posts on LinkedIn and knowledge share that is happening is a good trigger for me to be like, okay, there are more people interested in the creator economy and wanting to be a part of it. Because, you know, you had people who generally probably before didn't really care if they had a thousand followers or 500 followers on LinkedIn. Now they are working to having 20,000, 50,000, you know, how can they level up? Um, and that's through, you know, YouTube videos, through podcasts. I think uh, on a weekly basis, maybe I get invited to like three or four to listen to three or four new podcasts entering the space that have to do with the metaverse and NFTs. So plainly just looking at it, I can tell you that that shift is, is, is happening very strongly, not gradually, like it's moving pretty quick. But how deep into it they are, I honestly would not have much insight on that. But from the people around me, uh, they're, they're very much in, mm-hmm. in, in the 
Let, let's take an actual recent example of this. So at the moment in Switzerland, the World Economic Forum, it's taking place in Davos. Yep. And what is interesting is that the forum's annual meet meeting, it also welcomed a new delegation of YouTube creators, which is the largest group of social media content creators ever to participate in the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. Now, this is an example of something that's committing to the enrichment of the creator economy. And what I want to ask you, Sandra, is where do you see the metaverse's role in a situation like this? You know, back in the day, Tumblr used to be pretty big. Um, you know, you'd sit down, you'd share these pictures and you'd share your thoughts. And then slowly Tumblr turned into, you know, websites, it turned into blog posts, it turned into um, WordPress, whatever, whatever came about with it, Squarespace and all of these things. So slowly the transition that happened was you took an idea and it blew up. When you look at, you know, as you just said, YouTube, the knowledge here and the content that happens through videos and through the little shorts that people put out, people's attention span has really died down. I probably wouldn't sit down writing and reading an article, sorry, but I would watch a quick short. So in general, content creators that focus more on video are in a very good position to enter the metaverse quickly because the way the metaverse works is that it's very visual. It's audio, it's visual. And you do have the ability to stream a lot of, a lot of the content that gets out. So, you know, when you enter it, you can play around with it. You can see it. You can personalize it also uh, a bit more. And I think this is something that we're noticing with Netflix that they're trying to do as well is you can build your own experience with some TV shows, regardless, uh, you know, depending on how you watch it and how you, and, and how you view it. So for me, the metaverse role that it'll play is for these YouTubers, they can, again, with the creator economy, build their own community. Uh, they can involve their community in their, you know, little spaces in their, for us, we call them domes okay, <laughs> in their nice. domes, in their environments. Uh, you know, you can create new revenue streams. If someone wants to have early access, you can set up early access based on, you know, a subscription fee. You can um, create merchandise. You can create digital assets that go with your uh, with your YouTube. So this is exactly what I mean by applying use cases and a strategy to how you want to add new revenue streams to your own personal brand, uh, which is extremely feasible. Now, you might be probably wanting to say, but how is that different from setting up a website and actually, you know, having subscription to it? Because that's a question that always gets asked. The only difference, and this is what we want people in the space to understand, or I want people in the space to understand, is the metaverse is not going to completely solve or change how Web2 operated. It's just going to add that new layer of engagement, as I said. So we're not here to replace. We're here to better um, you know, redefine what it means to engage. So rather than me just being on a static website, I can now see other avatars in this VIP club. I can now collaborate more. I can now, you know, move from place to place. So that that to me is what makes the metaverse the next iteration of what we already use now through mm -hmm. the internet. I mean, from a, a, a phys phys physiological perspective as well. I mean, the cognitive the cognitive demand is increased. So you're more likely to take a lot of positive away from the immersive experience, as you mentioned, in comparative to a static website interaction. And um, there's one question that relates to what we're talking about that I think is important to focus on as well. We've given an idea of a use case for um, someone who's part of the creator economy. If we go a little bit more big scale and we're looking at an organization, the big question here is how can an organization understand their metaverse? use case generally the what we're noticing it's a big now question, is isn't space, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no not really you know it's it's this actually where the main bulk of my focus goes to is how can you how can the support and onboarding a lot of these brands into into web3 and the the biggest issue or the biggest problem that you have is you have people jumping in for the hype you know they come in they want to be the first movers but 
being a first mover isn't generally always a good thing because to be a first mover, you kind of need to understand, okay, what is this going to add value? I don't know if a new cocktail has been designed in, in, in a restaurant, I don't want to be the first person to try it. What if it tastes horrible? <laughs> so for me, I, I like to view things exactly this way because a lot of people, a lot of brands actually that did enter web three and the metaverse last year, they didn't really get it right. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Kudos to them for having the courage to want to do that. But a lot of the time and effort and where we are right now, for me anyways, is that there's this layer of education that needs to be applied. You cannot skip the education phase because like I said, any industry in every industry needs to know exactly what use case is going to be applied to their operations. How can the metaverse actually streamline and make it better? You know, we work with a lot of brands um, and, and, and a lot of what we do is called the solutioning layer. So we help you find the solutions of what the metaverse can actually, you know, fix and make easier for you in that transition. So with a lot of large organizations, we focus on, let's say, HR onboarding. What does it mean to incentivize your employees through the metaverse? And how can you make their day-to-day better? How can you keep them connected? Uh, for others, it could be opening new revenue streams, introducing digital assets into their physical market and you know, attaching them together. So you cannot skip the education phase and mm. you should focus on the use cases that need to apply to your operations, to your business model. And I would suggest that no one starts working backwards. So don't enter the metaverse and then try to find the use cases. <laughs> find the use cases, find the, you know, find the strategy, and then slowly when you're ready, deploy into the metaverse. And that's exactly what we do in, in our solutioning layer with, with brands and everyone that we work with. That's a great introduction. And I think that here, obviously, we're trying to ensure that people do get a core layer of education by giving you the opportunity to educate us here on redefining AI. Now, as the CCO of Metapolist and as a futurist, how are you enriching and innovating the creative economy, Web3 and the metaverse? Maybe we can look a little bit more at Metapolis itself. Why metaverse as a service platform is necessary? Let's move a little bit more in that direction. You know, when, when we set out to introduce the metaverse as a service platform, for us, it was really important and crucial that we do that because we didn't want to include an environments to be built. If you look at everyone's, I think, uh, mobile phone right now, there are countless number of wallets. There are countless number of blockchains that exist. Um, there are a lot of metaverses that are secluded that makes it difficult to actually build engagements when people are trying to interact with them. You know, um, one example I always give is if I need to change my car every time I need to go down certain streets, Chances are I would just avoid them. I wouldn't do that. And that's kind of what's happening in the market right now is the increased number of wallets that are needed, blockchains that are there. Um, how do you track your assets? You know, if you have three assets on one layer in one metaverse and you have four on another one, how do you bring them together and actually see them in one unified space? So what we set out to build was the standard metaverse layer, meaning that we build the products that are necessary for anyone to deploy. We are blockchain agnostic. So meaning we can integrate with any blockchain layer. Mm. We have our metaverse standard wallet, meaning that you can bring all your assets into one place, all your crypto that is used between brands into one place, because as you know, a lot of them do launch their own tokens eventually. And we focus on interoperability. I'm just happy I said the word right, to be honest. (laughs) Usually I thought it whenever I'm saying it. So, you know, for us, we've made it a very IO world, meaning that you can freely move around, you can deploy and that layer is what's necessary. So uh, the way we like to say this, think of it as Shopify, but for the metaverse, you know, you can go in, you have, uh, you know, you can create your own website and then you can just publish it out there. Now, obviously it is a bit more in depth because the metaverse does require a certain level of, you know, safety and security. For example, for us, 
our avatars need to be KYC'd because we do need to take on board things such as, you know, grooming, harassment, bullying. How can we prevent issues from happening? We'd like to give that layer to people where they can comfortably come in based on their strategy and their use case and say, okay, this is the blockchain layer I want to work with. This is what I want to do. Or it's the other way around. We say to them that we feel this is the blockchain layer you should be using and this is what you should do. So this is why for us, Metapolis is extremely important because it, it is in a sense opening the economy. It's not secluded anymore. Great. I mean, interoperability, yeah, it's quite a, 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 a long word just to put in a small definition. So it is founded on the ability for users to participate across environments and technologies for data to circulate freely and securely and for systems to exchange information seamlessly. Correct? 100%. And that's something that you focus on at Metapolis with security, safety and digital identity at heart. Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, I'm not here claiming that we're the, the best of the best. It's, I think that's a very vague, uh, naive sorry, statement to make for, from my perspective for saying it. But mm. we do expect that that layer makes it easier for a lot of people to enter. Because if you look, again, at everyone launching their own metaverse, it is a secluded world. You know, they would get up to, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 visitors upon launch, and then that's it. It will die down. Because while we don't see the metaverse as a game, we do believe and understand and see the value of gamifying your experience for others to be incentivized and to feel like they want to return. So there is that layer, that element that does require free movement between worlds and between avatars and that collaborative layer. And this is why, you know, having secluded environments makes it difficult because you can't grow. That's it. it it's very confined to your space. Yeah, it limits the, the extent of the experience. And out of all of those that we have listed there in terms of the interoperability, the security, the safety, the digital identity, what's the biggest challenge at the moment or where's the biggest backlash that you're pushing against, fighting against in the, in the nicest possible way? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you used the right term. It's just for me, I'm trying to kind of soften what I'm about to say. You know, I think the biggest misconception is that a lot of people believe that Web3 is all about decentralization. But if we... As humans, are we officially and 100% ready to self-sovereign and self-govern ourselves and our identity and who we, in a sense, yes, to a certain, to a certain, you know, example or to a certain matter. But when it comes to broader examples of having to interact with people, there does need to be that level of safety and security applied because, you know, psychologically, um, I don't know how deep you want to get into it because I, I, I tend to go quite deep into safety yeah, and cool. security, yeah, but yeah. psychologically, when a person is, you know, unanimous online, behavior would be completely different to them being KYC. And we're not trying to take away from a person's, you know, identity or from their right to be unanimous, you know, for their right to not be known online. But with great, um, there's great responsibility for us to make sure that people do not get harassed, do not get bullied. There is no grooming that happens. And this is something that you can see online very clearly now. I mean, if you open up Twitter or, or, or LinkedIn or, or Quora, even, you know, you can see fake profiles sometimes that would be completely trashing a certain topic or a certain individual. But then on the other side, you know, you have these people that are, you know, they have their profile picture, they have their work experiences and all tackling certain issues in a different manner. Now, probably I want people to understand that I gave this example because if people enter as in, as avatars that have absolutely no identity linked to them, it does become difficult to monitor exactly how safe worlds are going to be. And if we want the metaverse to be open for all, accessible for all, and inclusive of everyone that is out there, there is a level of, well, safety that needs to rest on our shoulders to make sure that it's secure and safe. 
Yeah, and I think that that's always the challenge of trying to create an environment that is free, that is inclusive, that people can feel safe in, that they can still be unanimous without having the pressures that would come in different environments, but also trying to, yeah, I think it's the, it's the tail between those two of trying to get that 100% right. And that must be quite difficult in that sense. I mean, look, decentralization still will exist. I mean, by, by all means, like I said, there are certain levels and layers where as, as individuals, we can take control of our data, of our, of our identity, of who we are. But it, it, it kind of stops. There's a fine line between me as an individual and me needing to communicate and collaborate with others. When, when that fine line is starting to get crossed, there will need to be a level of security and safety applied because, and I, I'll give you this example. If right now we open this chat, right, to a thousand people with everyone's microphone on, can you control what they're going to say or how they're going to behave? No, but the whole point of the metaverse is not to control people. It's just to make sure that people do not cross the level of safety and security. And, you know, we do that through introducing things such as safety bubbles or trigger words that a person can apply. You know, for example, if my trigger word to trigger a warning is, I don't know, XXX, whatever, whenever someone says that to me, then that can trigger a safety bubble around me, meaning that I can, you know, remove myself from this conversation safely. So it's very smooth, aesthetic ways of uh, letting people feel comfortable and safe without actually implying that they need to change who they are and what they do because mm. everyone has their own kind of perspective in life, right? So... And do you, do you personally, you're the, not you personally, but the organization, do you target more of, well, in the sense of it, it's a corporate targeting, you're not targeting children in that sense, because this is also very sensitive when it comes to setting safe parameters, as in safe bubbles, trigger words for children, the environment is much more sensitive, I would imagine. I mean, uh, right now, all of our clients have been primarily, uh, you know, companies, brands, organizations looking at entering the metaverse. We haven't had um, any major focus on children wanting to add it, kind of similar to like what a Roblox would be. Exactly, or, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was this funny story about a mom that found their kid on Roblox and told them to heat the lasagna. <laughs> um, you know, so you have you have these kind of interesting stories that happen on, on worlds such as Roblox, where... On our platform, we cannot imitate because, again, we are not a gamified world. We are a world that operates for brands, companies, organizations, individuals that want to add that new layer of engagement into their already existing operations. So think of it of when websites existed, but then social media came out. Everyone moved towards having an Instagram page, a Facebook page. You know, Now people have YouTube channels as well, and they can have a metaverse. So this is more what, what our perspective is. But... In the future, I mean, obviously, this is why grooming comes in, you know, how do people talk, how do brands talk to their end user and all. But for now, and being very honest, we haven't had to primarily focus on anything that had to do with, with children. And that's why KYC is important, because if you're, you know, below the, the age to be KYC, then a parent would need to be involved. So from our end, we try to protect that. Mm -hmm. So let's do a full circle loop before we um, end our discussion, Sandra. The show is called Redefining AI, and I'm not sure that many of us will understand as well the role that AI plays in the metaverse, or maybe it doesn't play too many roles. In your own opinion, though, how can AI elevate the metaverse and what can it break down, if anything, in the metaverse? You know, I'm actually very excited about AI in, in the metaverse because 
if you look at the transition and at the, the future that's about to come, a lot of our systems and a lot of our communication will need to be, um, it will kind of shift away from being human first to being AI, uh, AI first because of just the level of accuracy that can be trained and just the level of it constantly being on. I'll give you a easy example to be conscious of time. Um, if you look at NPCs and them, you know, being customer service, you can train them to, you know, whenever someone enters, because the metaverse is always on, it is meant to be an always on layer, regardless of time, regardless of space, regardless of where you are in your location, you can train an NPC through AI to communicate with the, any user in the way that they need to be spoken to. Uh, you can train them to, you know, uh, still talking about NPCs here, of course, you can still train them as well. And, you know, what do you want them to complete in terms of tasks? How can AI make automation easier for a lot of brands and a lot of companies in the metaverse? You know, already we're seeing a lot of people online saying that chat GPT is taking two to three hours of their daily tasks because they're just automating exactly what would need to happen with it. And that's, and that, and that's an example of, of uh, AI that hasn't been a hundred percent trained or given its full, you know, um, well, it's full flex <laughs> to go out there for everything that it knows. So, you know, the, the future is definitely looking good. Do I think AI is going to replace humans? No, there's always going to be that level of sensitivity, that level of emotion that needs to be applied. But then again, we are still a long way away from having that discussion. So, Very much so. I mean, I'm certainly um, in the opinion that AI won't replace humans. We're far from a state of full-blown general intelligence where AI is going to do everything that a human is currently doing at present. I mean, there's so much complexity if we even look at what makes us humans and the capabilities of being able to, you know, love, to smell, everything that cannot be encoded, that's not been encoded yet. I'm not saying maybe in 120 years or whatever, but at the moment, I, do, I would certainly agree that we're far from full-blown general intelligence. 100%. 100%. I think right now what's important is that we we do notice that the automation that it brings does free up time, meaning that we are, I mean, look at it in a positive way. If we use AI in our everyday, then maybe we can move to a four-day work week rather than a... Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all about augmentation and that's what we motion as well at Squirrel. It's about enhancing human capabilities and provide them with tools that ease um, a lot of the, the everyday tasks that they're actually um, tackling in a working environment. Yeah. So thanks, Sandra. It's been informative. And I think that you've taken a step forward in ensuring that there is that education around what's happening in the metaverse and Web3 and certainly in the creator economy. And I hope that you've enjoyed being with us and that you'll come back one day um, in the future as well to tell us about your own engagements in the next few months. Thank you, Lauren. Really love being a part of this. Appreciated all the questions. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. So I'd like to thank everyone else for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about AI, ML and search, then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com. Thanks.